0: Wow. When Jesus uh, cleared the temple, he quoted an Old Testament verse in which he said, my house should be a house of prayer. Uh, It wasn't that my house would be a house of worship in that moment. Jesus didn't say my house should be a house of service or my house should be a house of fellowship or my house should be a house of justice. It's my house is a house of prayer, a place where people are calling upon the name of the Lord. And Jesus was combating a lot of things going on in the temple at the time that were about personal gain and profit. And he's encouraging them, my house is a house of prayer. And we want to be a church that is living into a deeper prayer culture. So on Sunday, we station people to receive you for prayer. We have tables at any, at any point in, in the worship service, you are free to go to one of those four tables we have in those center aisles and write down any prayer of thanksgiving we take those on monday we pray over them as a leadership and in two weeks we're going to engage in a in a two-week prayer effort we've done these in the past i think back to 2010 one of the favorite prayer efforts we did um i I just remember because it was right when my sister died when we had a worship service they kick off that prayer campaign and what we did is we purchased the the names and addresses of every family unit who lives in the 38134 area, it ended up being about 45,000 people, over 11,000 households. And you took a sheet of paper in which you adopted 35 to 40 people and families you would pray over. We had a theme for 40 days, a theme per week that we would pray over everyone in our community. And this is a way for God to develop our love for the neighborhood and the love for the community he's placed this in 38134 includes some of Memphis also some of Bartlett and at the end of that campaign Justin Archery had formed a postcard that went out to every person in the neighborhood letting them know what we had prayed giving them a cell phone number to call if they had sensed God move in any of those areas of their lives giving them an email address and we heard from quite a bit of people and most of the responses were thank you we had a few people who testified of how God moved in their lives. We had one woman who called and threatened to sue us because she wasn't too happy about the postcard. That's okay. Um, we're going to engage in two weeks of prayer. And this isn't that we don't want to learn how to pray the other 50 weeks of the year, but there's, there's something powerful that happens when a church comes together, united, praying some of the same things every day. So how, how it's going to go on August 6th, we're going to kick this off. And you're going to receive a, a church-wide email for 10 days, with Randy Frederick, some of the elders, our vision team and our leadership has put together just simple little prayer thoughts that will guide us for 10 days. Verses to pray, um, how to live that out, how to practice prayer, disciplines to commit to for 10 days. And then on August 16th, which is a Wednesday night, we're going to have a worship service here, a combined worship service And we're going to have an 84-hour around-the-clock prayer vigil. We've done these before. In fact, in the past, we've done this for a full week where people would come up here and pray. We did 30-minute slots a few years ago. This year, we're going to do one-hour slots. There are going to be 84 of them. We're going to pray from Wednesday night all the way to Sunday morning. There's some beautiful images in the Chronicles, first and second Chronicles, of the people of God coming together where night and day there was music and prayer happening in the place of God. And there's something powerful about coming. We'll be in this room where we will pray for 84 hours. There'll be security here. There'll be shepherds here if you need them. There'll be snipers on the roof. You're going to be safe, all right? You're going to be protected. But we look forward. I I hope you'll uh, um, pray and, and think of how God is leading you to commit to that season. Open your Bibles at John chapter 1 today. I want to start off with one of uh, my favorite verses in the entire Bible. A verse that has formed me and has shaped me over the last few years of my life. A verse I carry with me uh, everywhere I go every day. John 1, verse 14 says this The Word became flesh. Some of your versions is the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, or the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. It's the word, it's the perfect embodiment of God placed in human form in Jesus. If you want to know who God is, study and look at Jesus, because Jesus is the perfect reflection. He's the the perfect embodiment of Our Heavenly Father, if you want to know who God is, if you struggle with who God is, if you read some places in the Old Testament, and sometimes you struggle with the God of violence and the God who would initiate some forms of genocide and the God who uh, sometimes wrath is being spilled out, if you struggle with some of those places, learn to view them through what you see in Jesus. Jesus becomes the perfect reflection of the heart of God, mind of God, intentions of God, the mission of God. He's the perfect reflection of who God is. And what he chose to do, what God chose to do, was to step into the mess and the darkness of this world. So uh, God chose that instead of comforting people by sending words or um, sending prophets to speak a word of, of, of God into their lives, God chose, hey, I'm not, I'm not just going to speak words to you. I'm not just going to comfort you with words. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring myself to comfort you. I'm going to step down. I'm going to stoop low. I'm going to get down on your level to connect with humanity. God's heart is bent, not towards avoidance, but toward holy engagement. God's heart is bent not to run away from people, but the way Jesus teaches us that God's heart is bent toward holy engagement. Not just any form of engagement, not just loving engagement where it's God's going to love you in your sin no matter what. It's that God wants to love you from your sin. And it's something better. It's holy engagement. That God is looking for that drives him. So we're in this um, we're in a study right now called Stream. It's been the last six weeks. You can check these out online. Follow us on a podcast if you want to catch up on them. Uh, and, and today I want to talk about one of the streams of Christian thought. So what we've done the last six weeks is we've unpacked just streams of uh, Christian thought. We've, we've talked about the Holy Spirit, the Charismatic tradition, on uh, what it means to what it has meant. I think a better uh, view of what it means to be evangelical. It's someone committed to ev- uh, evangelism. and the Great Commission, we have talked about um, contemplative tradition, how we root ourselves in something deep, as something of God. We've talked about um, social justice last week. Today, I want to talk about the incarnational tradition. Um, I've enjoyed this series and walking you through some of this because I, I want to protect all of us from ever putting God in a box and reducing god to our own experiences and not allow god to invite us into some other places just to see how big he is how big his heart is his mission is that god is doing things that are outside of our experiences and god's not going to invite you into a place that's going to do any harm to your spiritual life it's to expand and stretch us and grow us and what's so beautiful about the incarnational tradition what the incarnation that god became flesh that he's calling his church to do the same thing, like to step into the mess of the world, not just to avoid it, not to escape from it. The beautiful thing is this is the tradition that teaches us that God is in the everyday, the small things that happen every day. He's not just in the big events. He's not just in the Sunday morning experience. And at least my experience is with many of you and many people, what is so hard for them to grasp and to understand and begin to implement in our lives is how god is fully present and working in that monday afternoon board meeting or when we wake up wednesday morning and we're already drained from a week and we're going to work or coming home from work into a family environment that may be full of stress and tension that god is present in the everyday. that god is there um uh, i forget who it was years ago eugene peterson ended up quoting from it but that Christ plays in 10,000 places. The kingdom of God is advancing in thousands and thousands of places. Here's why I think this is so important. Because it's easy in our walk, and even how we interpret Scripture sometimes, and how we think of God, sometimes it's easy for us to think that God did a lot of great things in the past, and the way we even tell the next generation about who God is, is about what God did. What happens if our only language of God is past tense language of what God used to do? Okay, but what happens if our language of God is only future tense of how God is bringing things to fulfillment or what heaven will be like? What if our language of God is only future tense? Or what happens if our language of God is only past and future tense? That God is also in the present doing things now. His spirit today is roaming throughout this world, convicting hearts, inspiring people that God is in the past. He's in the future, the present. He's also in the future. Um. And when I meet, meet with people, when I pray with people, when people give me things to pray for, a lot of times what people are searching for, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, is purpose and meaning in life. They want to know that their life, that their life matters. Um, it was, uh, I, I had only been here at Sycamore View probably a year when I decided to read uh, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Let me just see a show of hands. How many people have read The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren? Um real quick funny story. Um, I was I spoke in florida around that same time So this was eight years ago or so And uh, I I was doing this event for this church and they broke it up into segments I was going to speak to the entire church a couple of times But then I also was going to speak I think to the youth and then this all ladies event and an all Men's event and the opening night was to a room full of all women It was my first time to speak in front of a room of all women. All right, so I was already really nervous and I asked them, how many of you have read Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life? And they raised their hands. And I, I meant to say that for the past seven years, that book had been sitting on my shelf. But a word came out that rhymes with sitting uh, in front of this group of all women. And it was evident that I had said a word that I should not have said in front of people that really wasn't in my vocabulary it was, They started laughing, all right? They couldn't stop. One woman, midway through the pews, through the audience, yelled out, We hate when our books do that too, all right? (laughs) So so the women are like, how am I going to get back on my feet? I'm already mortified. There was one man in the audience. He's the man who is running sound in the booth recording. So every time I see this guy at Pepperdine Lectures or some other conference, he finds me and he says, I still have that tape, all right? This dude's like blackmailing me. But here's the deal with that book, all right? It had been on my shelf for seven years. Uh, Well, I had not, (laughs) I had not read it. And one day I was like, man, what's the thing with this book? Because, I I mean, I I knew about the book. I knew Rick Warren had sold millions and millions, tens of millions of copies. Rick Warren, who's a pastor on the West Coast, sold so many books of the purpose-driven life that he and his wife reverse tithe. So instead of living on 90 and giving 10 to the church, they live on 10% and give 90 to the church and the other kingdom efforts now the 10 percent they live on is more than me and most of you will make in our entire lives but tens of millions of copies so i was in my office one day and i was like what's the thing like why are so many people drawn to this so i open it up and the book tells you like hey do not read this in one setting you're supposed to read it over 40 days i totally broke his rule i read the whole book in one day i just want to see what it was about and and i'm not this isn't meant to be a knock on rick warren at all all right but as I read that book, I wasn't like overly surprised. There wasn't like some big revelation in my life, some, something he wrote about like there was this truth of God I'd never heard or how he had unpacked scripture that I'd never seen before, all right? Uh, but at the very beginning of the book, here's something he stated. And this is huge. The very beginning of the book, you open up The Purpose Driven Life, here's what it says. This is more than a book. It's a guide to a 40-day spiritual journey that will enable you to discover the answer to life's most important question— what on earth am I here for? And by the end of this journey, you will know God's purpose for your life and will understand the big picture, how all the pieces of your life fit together. And having this perspective will reduce your stress, simplify your decisions, increase your satisfaction, and most important, prepare you for eternity. And if you read that, who doesn't want that, right? Like who wouldn't want to dive deeper into that? And it's a lot of principles throughout the book that are very simple but very needed for the lives of people just to root them in things that really matter. And I walked away from that appreciating the book, but also realizing how much we as humanity we want we want purpose. I want to help people have purpose. Purpose is found in Jesus. I want the teenagers in the room to believe there's purpose in your life and you don't have to wait until you're 25 to start trying to figure out what it means to live a life of purpose or meaning. I want to help the elderly people, and some of them are in this room whose mobility has greatly declined, who it's hard for you to get around, for you to know that the small things you still do matter for the kingdom. They add up in the kingdom of God, that there is purpose. And what happens if we don't have purpose? What happens if we do have it? So in John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, it's this beautiful truth of God that the word became flesh And dwelled among us. Jesus came to walk on our level, to connect with humanity, to reveal the heart of God, the intentions of God, the mission of God, to fill people and inject people with purpose. But let me show you real quick how the book of John goes on, because that's John chapter (laughs) 1, where Jesus reveals it, like his incarnation, I'm here. And then as you fast forward and you go through the grind of the gospel of John, where there are three, three and a half years of the life of, of Jesus's life and ministry, for three and a three and a half years, Jesus is performing miracles. He's teaching people. He's calling this small group of, uh, of the disciples to follow him. The disciples are empowered by Jesus where they are teaching. They are healing. They're performing miracles. And then you get to the, to the cross where there are disciples, there are apostles of Jesus who betray him. At the time when he needed them the most, they curse him. And in John 20 and 21, you actually get two endings to the gospel of John. In John 21, you get this image, and Jesus rose from the dead, and the apostles knew he was alive, but they're out on a boat fishing, and it's ambiguous, all right? You aren't really told why they're there. We can guess why they're there. I'm sure there are really smart people who've argued that the reason they were out on the boat is because they had gone to their, back to their former way of life. Many of them were fishermen. They had followed Jesus for three and a, three and a half years, thinking Jesus was implementing and ushering in the kingdom of god and it didn't happen like they thought they would so maybe they went back to fishing maybe it was just maybe it was a form of therapy maybe i, I think they fully believed in who jesus was but they weren't really sure how this was going to play out for the rest of their lives maybe a little confused so they're just out they're just out fishing the story goes that they're out in the boat fishing jesus is on the shore they don't know it's jesus jesus is cooking some fish just trust me in the greek it was fried fish all right with hush puppies, it's there. He's making fish. And when they, Jesus yells at him, put your nets in, on the other side. They do, they catch so many fish that uh, this time the boats aren't sinking. The nets aren't breaking. But so many fish, Peter immediately knew it's Jesus. And he jumped in and he swam a hundred yards. I don't know if I could swim a hundred yards if my life depended on it, all right? It was like, for Peter, it was, what's the quickest route? For me to get to Jesus, and for him it was swimming. He jumped in, gets to Jesus. And if you're Peter, you had gone a few weeks now, living in the turmoil of betraying Jesus, cursing uh, that you even knew him. And I bet inside of Peter there was this thought of, um, "What do I have to offer the kingdom? What do I have to offer Jesus? How how am I going to move forward in my life?" There are those events that happen in all of our lives. That how we walk in the future with God's not going to be like how we've walked in the past with God. And it's not that God has changed, but circumstances and relationships have changed. Many of you in this room need to hear this. Uh, Because a lot of you have, you've lost loved ones recently, or there's been divorce, or forms of bankruptcy, or a job that's just stressing you out, or you are searching for a job and the inability to find the right one, or a job that just would come along is making you question you. who you are as a person and how we move into the future with God may not be like how we've been in the past but how does this play out here's what Jesus says in John chapter 21 verse 19 through 23 he's had this little small moment with Peter and with the apostles he says this Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God so he's picking up on a teaching and then he says then he said to him follow me and Peter turned and saw that the disciples whom Jesus loved was following them. And this was the one who would lean back against Jesus to the supper. And it said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I return, what's that to you? But as for you, you follow me. This is how Jesus invites people in a relationship with him. More than using the phrase, believe me. More than using the phrase, accept me. More than using the phrase, trust in me. It's follow me. And for a long time in my life, especially through like uh, grad school seminary, I, I made these arguments where I was like, man, why is John in between Luke and Acts? Because if Luke wrote Luke and Acts, you need to hold part one and part two together. John kind of gets in the way. Right. Uh, but after coming to a better understanding of John 21, I think, man, this is the chapter that had to end the four gospels because without this encounter jesus had with peter i don't know what becomes of peter i think he would have believed in jesus the rest of his life but i don't know how much he would have felt like he could be used by jesus and the last two words if you have the red letters in your bible the last two words jesus speaks in the gospel of john is follow me it's the invitation of jesus that just keeps coming the presence of Jesus keeps coming. The invitations keep coming. His invitation for you to follow him. So there are times when Jesus speaks, follow me to people who aren't living in a relationship with him. They've never trusted him. They've never been baptized. But this shows you that there are times Jesus looks in the face of believers and says, hey, keep coming. There's more to this. There's more I have in store for you. There's more I, what I want of you. There's a future for you. Keep coming. Keep following. God does not hold back his desire, and God does not hold hold back his ability to create. And the good news for a lot of us in the room today, God does not hold back his desire or his ability to recreate. It's the testimony of Celebrate Recovery every Tuesday night when you guys get together. Believing that, hey, it doesn't matter where we've been or what we've done, there's a God who has a future for us, and he's encountering us in the present to move us to a better place. So John begins with the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it ends with Jesus saying, hey, follow me. Even when his body ascends into the heavens, the truth of Jesus, the presence of Jesus is with us, calling us into this deeper life. So for us to realize and to reflect on how God's calling us and just the day-to-day awareness of the presence of God and how God's using His church It is to realize that God is not just inviting people in His church into a building to worship. He's also the one inviting us out of the building to go and live out this faith anywhere we go. It's also realizing that when we ask God to come and be more of us, God, we want to know You more. There are times when God just intrudes on your life. There's no invitation that you need to give Him, He just comes, He forces Himself in. Even if your door is locked, there are times where God beats down the door and He comes to set you straight, to set the world straight, to speak words of conviction. Sometimes it's to burst in and to reveal Himself for who He is. Yet there are also times I think God's kind of polite in a way that there are times when God waits and He's waiting for that door to unlock or He's waiting for you to drop something so you have some space to receive more of God or to let go of something so you can open up and receive from the Lord. There are times where God intrudes. There are times where God is waiting for you to allow some space to trust and surrender so that you give God a little bit of room in your life for God to work. And I don't know what it is God wants of you or how God's going to encounter you today or in the prayer time we have in a minute. But be prepared in this room for God to intrude or for God to ask for you to set something down so he can inject more of himself. There's a man. His name was Dag Hammarskjöld. He was born in Sweden back in 1905. His, his father was the prime minister of Sweden. He grew up in a large family and his dad was the one who taught him about politics. His dad told him about, taught him about equality and justice. But he says it was his mother who introduced him to the Gospels. Who taught him that all men and women were created equal. And they set him on a journey in life. A brilliant guy. Could speak many languages. Loved poetry. Was an athlete. Was a gymnast. He was a swimmer. He uh, loved to climb mountains. He ended up getting the doctorate degree in political economy. And then later on in 1949... Hammersholt represented Sweden as a representative in the United Nations, as a delegate in the United Nations. And then a few years later, in 1953, of the 60 votes in the United Nations, 57 people voted for him to become the new Secretary General, which was his position that he held for a few years and then was reelected and stayed on a few more years. And in his life, it was his faith and what his parents taught him and how he thought about the world that, that gave him opportunities to step into Uh, all kinds of negotiations throughout the world to release hostages, sometimes American hostages. He spent a lot of time in war-torn countries with leaders trying to implement forms of peace. It was in September of 1961 that he was flying back into the Congo during a really tough time, and his, his plane was shot down, and Dag as well as 15 other people, lost their lives. And as sometimes happens when people die, In his will, he left a note for a friend telling his friend where he kept all of his personal journals. For those of you who keep journals, uh, if you want people to read them or you don't, either you need to hide them in a place no one will find them, or if you want people to read them one day because you think it will be life and be a blessing to people, you may want to let them know where they are, right? He told his friend exactly where they were. And in his journals were reflections on his family and life and faith and suffering and pain and doubt. And some of his statements were quite eerie. Like the night before Dr. King was assassinated, for him to stand up in front of people and talk about how he doesn't think he's going to live a long life. For my sister's last birthday, for her to speak words over, of blessing over people, telling them that if by chance she is the one who goes before them, she can't wait to be the usher in heaven to usher them into the presence of Jesus. And Dag had these comments too about tomorrow we will meet in the kingdom or we'll meet in heaven. But there is one statement he made about saying yes to God and yes to the mission of God that was this. You dare your yes and you experience a, you experience a meaning. You repeat your yes and all things acquire a meaning. And when everything has a meaning, how can you live anything but a, let, but a yes? That the yes you speak to God is not just the yes of your confession that he is Lord or to be baptized into Christ, but it's this daily yes. That I'm saying yes to the things of God. I'm saying yes to the holiness of God, the justice of God. That wherever we go, make Sycamore view, leave this place today saying yes to wherever it is the Father is leading. Can we bow our heads this morning? God, it's in your presence that we pray today that you will lead us today by your spirit, that we will, we will step where your spirit leads. We will go where your spirit tells us to go. Will you give your church courage and boldness to live out our faith this week, however it is you're inviting, whatever doors you're opening for us, help us to be obedient. And this morning, God, if I've spoken words that did not reflect your heart, your mission, your mind, your character, your nature. May those words fall to the ground and not be remembered. Be trampled. Uh, but if I spoke words this morning that are true to who you are and what it is you want of us, may those words sink deep into our hearts. May they be words that mess with us that bear great fruit for your kingdom. And we pray this in the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. For the shepherds, will you go, where you receive people? For our prayer leaders, will you dispense yourself throughout the room to receive folks? We're going to sing a couple of songs and we invite you to go and find one of these people, if there's anything we can do for you. If it's a day you want to say yes to Jesus and to be baptized into Christ, we invite you to come up here, join Wayne Ray and myself. We would be happy to receive you. And if there's something we can bring in front of the church for you, we would love to do, do that. Let's stand together. Let's sing a song.